there are certain people that if you were to say something kind about them, people would look at you like, huh? Like, if you said, you know, I think there's some aspects of Hitler that he was really a good leader. Somebody would look at you like, have you lost your mind? Um, or, or, or if somebody says, you know, Idi Amin should be a, somebody that we look at for leadership principles. Or, or if somebody says, you know, I, I think the way Putin treats uh, people that um, rise up against him. He finds creative ways to murder them. Um, and if you say, well, I, I really appreciate his leadership. You, people would look at you like, have you, do you got both oars in the water? Seriously. There are certain people that you just kind of know. Huh? And, and one of them, the group is in this text. I, I think people would, you know, kind of like, Really, I mean, uh, if, if I were to tell you, I have a soft spot for these guys. I, I do. I, these individuals who are coming up against Jesus, again, the Jews pick up stones to stone him. And you say, how do you say anything good about them? I, I will tell you, I do have a soft spot for them. And I'll tell you why. When they were kids and they went to the rabbi to be instructed, the first thing he was going to teach them is this phrase. It comes out of Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one Lord. They learned that from the earliest days of their life. They learned that God is one. They learned that God is superior. They learned that there is no other gods other than their God, the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, the God of Moses, the God of Isaac. They had that drilled into them. And so when Jesus comes along and he says to them in this text, starting at verse 28, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. What? God is the one who gives eternal life. And then he goes on to say, no one is ever going to snatch them out of my hand. My father, who's greater than all, no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. And then this phrase sent these poor guys over the edge. Jesus says, I and the father are one. Now there are going to be some people that are going to look at this text and say, oh, I know what, Jesus never claimed to be God. No, he didn't. Uh-uh. He just claimed that he was one with the father. Kind of like we're on the same page. That's what one means, right? Kind of like, hey, the father and I, we're, we're together in this. We, we're serving the same purposes. That's what he means by one. Well, you might say that. The Jews didn't. They didn't at all. Read the rest of it. Jesus comes and says, I and the Father are one. Again, the Jews picked up stones and they were getting ready to kill him. Why? Jesus said to them, I, I've shown you all kinds of great miracles. Healed a blind guy, lame, went to a wedding, made the wedding a really good one. Yeah, your wine's a piece of junk. Mine's great. Jesus did all that. For which of these are you stoning me? And they come back to him and they said, huh, we're not stoning you for any of these miracles, but for blasphemy. To the person who says that Jesus never claimed to be God, you aren't reading the Bible. You're just not. 
The Jews have more insight than that. They had stones in their hand. Why? Because we are going to stone you for blasphemy. I have a soft spot in my heart. Why? Because they were trained from a little kid to believe that God is singular. God is one. He is supreme. And the tragedy is they had a bad definition of God. They missed Jesus. They missed all of it. They missed the death, the resurrection, the forgiveness. Why? Because they had a definition of God that wasn't in line with what reality. And whenever you have a definition of God that is not in alignment with reality, you miss him. You miss all that God has for you. You can be as religious and as committed as you can be, and they were. But my soft spot is, is because they're not the only ones. J.I. Packer says, Christians don't talk about the Trinity. We don't. We're kind of maybe actually at times embarrassed of it. We kind of think that, well, the Trinity is kind of like the new math. You know, three equals one. Since when? You know, the idea of one plus one always equals two, at least when I went to school. And so when we get some of these languages today of this new math, and we're like, ah, forget it. And that's exactly what these Jewish leaders were. It's like, are you kidding me? Three equals one in whose math class? I have a soft spot in my heart. But I also have the conviction of the scriptures that we need to teach about the Trinity. Because if you miss it, you miss God. We may come at the end of the day and say, man, we haven't resolved all of the mystery and the tension. But if you miss the Trinity, you miss all of God. And that's why they wanted to stone him. And that's why Jesus taught in this passage, I and the Father are one. What is the Trinity? It's the Christian name for God. It is. We don't use it. I I hardly ever hear anybody when they pray, they're pretty much always like, Father, who art in heaven, you know, don't start that way, but that's who they pray to. Oh God, they might pray to Jesus. Seldom do I hear anyone pray to the Holy Spirit. I only have one good friend, Wes, who's about 90, and I never argue with 90-year-olds because he's right. And he begins every prayer with this, oh, triune God. He's the only guy I know. And he's been doing it for years. But if we're to define God, we have to use this term. Is it in the Bible? No, neither is grandfather. And I am one. I know it. And many of you are. So if you need the word in the Bible... There's a lot of words that aren't in the Bible that we, oh God, that's what it teaches. And if we're to look at this, I want to give you four words. They're not mine. They're not original with me. I'd love to give somebody credit, but probably a thousand people have used these four. But this is where I want to begin today. And I want to answer some questions out of this text. What does it mean that God is triune? What difference does it make? Is there any analogy, anything in the scripture that helps me more fully understand this? Do I have to believe in the Trinity? And if I don't, what are the implications? And if I do, how do I practice it?
All of these I want to take out of this text. The first word. This is what the Jews would agree to. This is what Muslims would agree to. And this is what Hindus would not agree to. God is one. God is monotheistic. There's one God. Where would they quote the scripture for that? It's Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 8. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one and you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all of your strength. Make no bones about it. The, the Jewish nation was right. There's one God. There's not many gods. And whatever definition you come up with, the Christian God of triune doesn't mean that I am disqualifying the oneness. There is one God. There's one supreme being, if you will. He has all authority. This singular God that it talks about, this one God has all authority and he's supreme and there's no other gods, no other powers that rise up against him. However, let me give you a second word, and that's the word three. When you start looking through the scriptures, will you find the term Trinity? No, but what you will find is three individuals. You will find plural. Even in Genesis chapter one, the Trinity shows up. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image. Our is not singular, it's plural. If God were to say, let me make mankind in my image, then we can go with the singular aspect of God. But he didn't. He said, let us, plural, make mankind in our image, plural. And he said, and then he created the male and female. You say, well, that's not triune, not yet. But he does tell you at that point that when you conceive of God, when you think of God, you cannot think of him as singular because he's already referred to himself as plural. Three. It means that God wasn't lonely. It means that there was fellowship. It means there was a community that was existing. When Jesus was about to beam up to heaven, he gathers his disciples together and he says, hey guys, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Matthew 28. All authority has been given to me. Given by whom? Even in that text, Jesus is telling you, and he's already claimed to be God. He said, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But even now, he says, all authority has been given to me. It has to be given by somebody. And I send you out, and I want you to make disciples of all of the nations. I want you to make followers of Jesus. That's what the term disciple means, students, literally. I want you to make students of people, and I want you to baptize them in the name of God the Father, in the name of God, the Son, and in the name of God, the Spirit. It's not sufficient to baptize them in the name of God. Why? Because Jesus says God is not singular. He's plural. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. There's three. It's going to stretch our mind. It's going to absolutely blow our mind when we try and figure out how do three become one. We'll look at that in a minute. 
There's another word that I want to give to you, and that is community. The Father is not the Son, and the Son is not Father, and the Father is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father, nor is the Spirit the Son. They're a community just like we are. We're a community of believers, but there's individuality here. Nobody loses their personal identity when they come together in this community. One church, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. When a husband and wife come together and the two shall become one. Wow, I wonder where they got that language. Neither the wife nor the husband lose their identity. You lose your capacity to leave your socks all over the floor. But you don't lose your identity. You still have separate closets, you hope. But when you come together and you create this thing called marriage and the two become one, the two don't cease to exist. Nor do they in the triune God. They come together. They work together. Yet they have different roles. In this community, just like you, you have different gifts. Or some of you are gifted in teaching. Some of you are gifted in administration. God the Father did not hang on the cross. It was God the Son. And God the Holy Spirit did not send. And God the Holy Spirit will not upon the day of the end when Christ comes back and every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Not at that moment will everyone bow to the Holy Spirit. We will all bow to Christ. And Christ, it says in 1 Corinthians 15 and following, he's going to put everything. He is going to have a footstool that he places it in front of the Father. It's through the blood of Christ that you're forgiven and redeemed. It's through the application of the washing and the cleansing of the Holy Spirit that it is applied. You see, just like in a church, just like in a marriage, my wife has gifts that I don't, I'll never get. And if I'm smart, I'll submit to them. I'll come under them. Because God has put us together in a community just like him. The fourth word I want to give you is unity. There's no jealousy in the Godhead. There's never been a conversation like this where the Holy Spirit says, hey, Father, you need to watch your son. He's kind of acting like an adolescent. He's getting a mind of his own. The, the Holy Spirit has never gone to the Father and say, you need to go down there. Your son is trying to think of another way other than the cross, and he's not going to go, and he's going to rebel. You better get a hold of this. And the son has never gone to the father. Father, the Holy Spirit doesn't want to come. He'd rather go fishing than convict people of sin and righteousness and judgment. There's never been jealousy. There's never been infighting. There's never been politics. It's a unity of three. The father, the son, and the Holy Spirit. And it's a unity, not only that they experience, but they want us to experience. When the son was praying, the true, if you will call it the Lord's prayer, John 17, he says, Father, may they, this church be one, just like you and I are one. May they look like us. 
so that the world will know that you sent me. If we're to describe the unity of God, we would look at it and say there's one God who exists in three persons, all unique with different personalities and different volitions, will, all submitted to each other. Inseparable. As much as the enemy tried to separate them, as much as the enemy tried to pull them apart, they refused. Because God can't be separated. And their unity held together. What difference does that make? Not easy to understand, I understand. Again, we have to kind of, if you will, suspend a level of logic that three can be one. Three unique persons, three unique role players in the Trinity are actually still in essence one. What difference does it make? Two that I want to give to you today. There's probably a ton, but let me give you two that I think are significant. Number one, if God is not triune, if he's singular, then God is insufficient and dependent, not independent. If God is not Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, relationship doesn't exist, love doesn't exist, and his creation is no longer out of a completely sufficient God who has no needs, but rather God has to create you so that he can have communication and relationship. If God is not triune, if God is singular, then we have a God who is dependent upon you for relationship. I I like this author's statement. He says, for love to exist, there has to be sharing. There does. You can't share if, 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 if love doesn't exist. And for love to exist, there must be sharing. There has to be communication. And there has to be self giving. But if there's only one, there's nothing to give the self to. You see, God can't be singular. Because if he is, he had no one to communicate to, no one to love. No one to give himself to. No one to receive love from. And if that's the case, then his creation is not out of the sufficiency of his glory and majesty. It's out of a need to have somebody to talk to. God must be, to be independent, to be self-sufficient, he must be three. And when he is three, we relate to him differently. Let's just take the issue of your temptation and sin. Maybe you've thought about this, but let me just walk you through it. When you sin, how do you relate to God? Now, if you've not sinned ever, take five minutes off. But when you sin, when you succumb to temptation, what do you do? You can come to God and say, God, I blew it. And, and so, Lord, um, is sin really all that important? Is it? Because if it is, I'm in trouble. I, I've, I've failed you. 
And God could redefine sin. He could say, eh, it's no big deal. You know, you broke the window. Ah, we don't need a window there anyhow. But if God holds the standard and says, the wages of sin is death. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Stop there. What's the net result if God is singular and God the Father is the only one who relates to us with the standard of holiness? What happens? The wages of sin is death. God the Father holds the standard. God the Son comes in and says, I want to extend to you grace. I want to die for you. Let's walk through a passage you know well. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins. Who forgives you? And by what means? It's Christ. It's Christ who forgives you. It's the blood of Christ that redeems you. It's the blood of Christ that it is an expression of the glorious grace of the Father. Keep going in that text. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Who cleanses us? Titus. By the washing and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Maybe you've never slowed that text down, but do you realize in that text you relate to all three elements, persons of the Trinity? You might just think, hey, if, if I sin, I confess to God. Well, you confess to God the Father. You are forgiven by God the Son. You are cleansed by God the Holy Spirit. And if you don't have all three, you have an insufficient restoration. God has to be three. Or he's not independent. And because he's three... When we sin, when we're restored, we relate to all three of them to bring us back into reconciled relationship with God so that we don't experience what we have earned. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God. What's the gift of God? Christ. But the free gift of God is forgiveness, eternal life through Christ. Applied to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Does it make a difference that God is three? Absolutely. If God is singular, then he's not independent. He needs you. Is there an analogy? Is there some kind of picture in the Bible? We make some of these up and you've probably heard most of them. There's the idea that God can be, you know, like water. It can be water, liquid. It can be steam. It can be ice. And I said last night, I said, but all three can't exist. And I had three really brilliant engineers hemorrhage right there in front of me. And uh, said, whoa, dude, 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 you went to theology. You didn't go to MIT. No kidding. I guess you can have all three in the right conditions of pressure and temperature. I had to give on that point. What I won't give is is that you don't relate to them personally because you can't have a relationship with water, ice, or steam. You can use them. You can swim in them. 
but you don't receive love from them. We could use the clover and the leaves, and we could use all of those, but those all come to a point where they kind of fail us. But I want to suggest there is two analogies given to us. They're in the Bible. One of them is introduced to us in Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in the image of God, in the reflection of God, on the blueprint of God, by the very nature of God. He said, let us make them man and woman. Can I say husband and wife? You see, I think one of the analogies that we need to use is the one that God gave to us in Genesis, repeated to us throughout the Bible, and absolutely drove a train through the church in Ephesians 5. See, this husband and this wife is made upon the template of God. And so when you look at the marriage, it will reflect the glory, the multifaceted nature of who God is, the two who are one, the community that comes together to serve, to create. But it doesn't stop there. Because in the book of Ephesians, God, who is unpacking the glory of who he is, chapter 1, and the mystery of what he does, chapter 2, and the revelation that now through the church, we are going to get a picture of God. Ephesians 3, 9, 10, 11. Now through the church, not just the marriage, no, no. Why? Because both of them are built upon what? God. The two that are one. The many that are one. One faith, one Lord, one baptism. Submit to each other. Humble yourself before each other. And and so are there analogies? Absolutely. You can look at the marriage and you can say, how do you know if you have a good marriage? If it looks like God. If there's mutual love and care and submission and and glory and, and affirmation just like God. And if you want to know, do you have a really good church? Ask yourself the question, does it look like God? Because that's actually what Jesus prayed. Father, may they be one, just like we're one, so that the world will know that I was real and you sent me. Not only are they analogies, but they're goals for you to pursue. You can reverse that. If you want to know what God is like, look at a really good marriage. If you want to know what community looks like, and if you want to know what unity looks like, if you want to know how three, two can come together to pursue one vision, one hope, one end, look at the marriage. And if you want to know what God looks like, look at the church. Because the many, many facets of the church all of these different gifts and they, they all these different personalities just like God and all of these different roles just like God all serving one purpose the reconciliation of people to Christ oh, there are analogies there are two of them You don't have to use water and ice anymore. You don't have to use the clover. Just use the two that God gave you. If you want to know what God looks like. I can give you some marriages that you need to just watch. 
because they will reflect the glory of God. They'll make you worship, not them, God. Are there analogies? Yes. Do I have to believe in the Trinity? No. The question is, do you want to believe in God? See, their, their problem here, yes, they believed in God, but they had a bad definition. And when you have a bad definition of God, you miss him. When you have a bad definition of Jesus, like the Da Vinci Code, you miss him. When you have a bad definition of Jesus or of God, like modality, it's a, it's a long-standing uh, theological position that, that God has, there's one God and he puts on different masks, the God, the Father, and then he puts on the mask, the Son, and then he puts on the mask, the Holy Spirit. The problem is, is when you have the different mask, they never show up at the same time like they did in Mark chapter one. And Masks don't have communication with the others because they don't exist at the same time. So all of the things that we think about don't suffice. But the reality is, do I have to believe in the Trinity? Yes. Because Christ dwells in all of the fullness. Christ dwells in all of the fullness. And the Holy Spirit, when he was lied to, the scripture says, you lied to God. I, I told you some time ago about a, a wonderful conversation I had. I've had two times in my life where I've met people who never attended church, but were followers of Christ. Both of them lived in places where the church didn't exist. This one recently that I, uh, I spent some time with, it was a group of us together. Um, there's no church where this person lives at all. You say, is there really a place like that? Yeah, quite a few. She finds out that I'm a pastor, uh, which I try and keep in disguise in certain locations. And she starts um, kind of asking questions. She tells me her story. And what she really wants to do is she wants to find out, does she believe the right thing? Her entire life is simply her, the word of God, and the Holy Spirit. So I taught for a number of years at Denver. And so, you know, I, I've taught this stuff for 20 years. So all we did is we started going down a theology of God and a theology of Christ and a theology of soteriology, salvation, and a theology of the church. And we started kind of working our way through. And, and when we got to this, this is early on to the theology of God. And she kind of looked at me a little sheepishly. And it's kind of like, uh, I'm not sure if I believe the right thing. There's one God, right? Yep, salad. But Jesus claims to be God, right? Yeah, he does. Okay. So you got God the Father, you got Jesus who claims to be God, and then the Holy Spirit, if you lie to him, you're lying to God, acts. And she said, I'm not sure I'm making sense. How do all three of them become God and you still only have one God? Do you have to believe in the Trinity? Yes. Because that's what the scripture reveals. And a person who's never had a person teach them or preach to them in their life 
read the scriptures and came to the conclusion there's one God who manifests himself, who reveals himself, who exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Do you have to believe in him? Yes. If you want to believe in the true God. If you believe in a singular God, then you're going to believe in a God who is not independent, who is not all-sufficient, who is actually dependent upon you. You've just now reduced God to less than he is. If you want to believe in a singular God, one who is supreme, then that's great. The problem is, is when you sin, you're going to get the wages of your sin, which is death. But if you believe in the God of the scriptures, then the God, the Father, holds the standard of holiness. The Son applies the gift of grace called his death and resurrection. And the Holy Spirit cleanses you and washes you and makes you new. Do you have to believe in the Trinity? Yes. If you want to believe in the God who saves So tomorrow when I get up, what difference is this going to make in my life? Let me give you three. Number one, if God is a trinity, what do I do differently? Church is a helpful way to more fully understand God. It is. Why? Because it's in the church that we are given the practice of baptism. Next week there will be 16 feet people Baptized, and they will be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And you will imagine, maybe for the first time, oh, that's what they're doing. They're declaring that this person is baptized in God. Yes. And then you're going to see the songs we sing, and they're going to start to pop off the page. And you're going to realize that they are Trinitarian songs. They are writing about God the Father who rescues, and God the Son who delivers, and God the Holy Spirit who fights. And you're going to realize you're in the biggest dogfight of your life, and you need all of God. And if you have an insufficient view of God then you're not going to have a sufficient salvation. Church is a helpful way to more fully understand God and, and, and church is a helpful way to more fully understand the height and the breadth and the depth of Christ. Paul in Ephesians 3, again, he's praying and he goes, I pray that you together would understand the height and the depth and the breadth of the love of Christ. Meaning, apart from each other, you're going to surrender yourself to a very embryonic view of Jesus. Practice community number two. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, but there's a lot of Christians in the church that are annoying Not you. You go home, look yourself in the mirror and say, boy, I tell you what, it's pretty doggone tough to be this perfect. Feel free. But to be quite honest with you, the reason why Paul says as a prisoner of the Lord, then I urge you to protect, 
to defend, to sustain the unity of Christ. The reason he said it that way is because it's not easy. You see, the triune God, there's no jealousy, there's no politics, there's no uh, envy. But in the church, there is. There's people who think they deserve certain things. There's other people who, you know, put down others. That's their way to move themselves forward. And then there's other people who think that they're the only ones that can sing and everyone should recognize how glorious their voice is. There's just all kinds of issues. And you can walk away from that and say, these people just annoy me. And plenty have. Or you can learn how to forgive. You can learn how to humble yourself before the mighty hand of God and let him exalt you in due time. You can learn how to sacrifice. You can learn how to look like God. Because if you're going to hang around in the church, you're going to need to learn how to look and act like God. You're going to need to learn how to take the offense of a person and give it over to Jesus. You're going to need to learn how to take a person who, who is, is a completely thoughtless and give your love to them. You're going to need to practice community. But if God is a community and Jesus prayed for it, I don't think Jesus has ever prayed for something that he doesn't believe can happen. And I live with that conviction to the core of my being that if Jesus prayed for our unity to look like his with the Father and the Spirit, then that's what we should chase. Last, embrace the relational God. What do I mean by that? Well, number one, I gave you an illustration. Understand that whenever you sin, you're embracing the relational God. You're embracing the standard of holiness, the application of grace, and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. When you pray and you understand that it's the Holy Spirit that brings conviction, you understand that in John 16, Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to bring conviction into your life and into other people's lives, you begin to ask the Holy Spirit, bring that conviction. And when you understand it's the Holy Spirit that washes clean, then you're going to begin to understand that when you have unforgiveness or maybe you have a wound in your heart and you don't know how to heal it and you can't, you, you, you begin to say, oh, Father, would you send the Holy Spirit to wash clean, to somehow take a memory that is just stuck on an event and I can't get off of it. Carrie and I have a, a good friend. And um, we noticed early on with her. She had no problem with God the Son. Great with God, great with Jesus. Great with the Holy Spirit. She could never pray using the term Father. Ever. When we got to know her, found out why. You probably guess. She was abused when she was young. The concept of Father was atrocious to her. But it was a barrier. Because God is Father. God is Son. God is Holy Spirit. 
And if you got one third of the Trinity that you just won't trust, you're in trouble. I remember when we were praying, she prayed this prayer. I, I think I can get really close, just almost exact. Jesus, would you please take me to the Father and teach me how to trust him? This woman who struggled trusting any men, deeply struggled trusting pastors, prayed to Jesus, would you take me to the Father? Would you help me embrace my triune God? Because unless I can come to the Father, the wound will always control me. God did that. She's so wonderfully free today because God is not singular to her. He's a father. He's a son. He's the Holy Spirit. And when we learn to relate to that God, he saves us. He heals us. And maybe that's what you need. Do you have to believe in the Trinity? Yes. Because if you don't, you don't believe in God. 